living in Delhi for a long time, I have a very special relationship with monkeys because sometimes they barge into your house and break your stuff. And there's nothing charming about that because they are scary ass creatures, right? <laughs> Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanny Show. Let's make some magic. <laughs> I'm Sean. I'm Daniel. And today we are joined by the superb Samet Basu, who is the author of The City Inside, first published in India as Chosen Spirits. Uh, Turbulence and its sequel is another set of works, uh, in which the sequel is Resistance. And this new book that we have in front of us today, uh, the wonderful The Jinbot of Shantiport, now available from Tor.com. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a fan of the show, so it's just great to be here. Well, we're excited because this book is wild. It is. It's wild <laughs> it is fun. A, it is a wild fun. I didn't look at the cover when I started, which I, I probably would have given me some clues. And then I was like, wait, it's a monkey bot? What do <laughs> yes, you mean? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I had to go back so, and reread. Because <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait, what's going on? What's... <laughs> but it's wonderful. Yeah, so it's great. So we'll have a bunch of questions for you. Yeah, but we'll get to those in just a second. Yeah, so in the meantime, a friendly reminder, before we get to those questions, we want to hear from you. Share your comments with us about this and past episodes at skiffyandfanty.com slash listener suggestions. We want to put together a listener mailbag episode with your thoughts, questions, topic suggestions, and more. So please get those thoughts in. All right, first question of the day. Tell us a little bit about this book, The Jinbot of Shantiport. What is this book about? Right. So it's being pitched now as Aladdin meets Murderbot, but it started out really as an attempt at a far future Aladdin space opera retelling. Now, um, so, but what happened was that the city kind of grew on the story and kept changing it into something that wasn't, you know, straightforward Aladdin retelling at all. So what, what ended up happening is that it became about these two people, one, Lena, a human, uh, a young human woman, who's the who's the daughter of failed revolutionaries in this you know big spaceport town, which used to be a, a an imperial capital, a colonial capital, but now is literally sinking, and everyone's everyone's leaving it, and it, it's sinking in the mud, and it's ruled by this you know um, corrupt clan, and this oligarch, and this crime lord. Um, so Lena is 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 burdened with the legacy of her parents who uh, who tried to conduct a revolution and failed. Um, and her robot monkey brother Bador is is her ally and constant nemesis. Um, so these are our two these are our two main characters, so to speak. Uh, Bador, however, doesn't want to save the city and its people. Bador wants to escape to space, win robot battle tournaments, and be a space hero. So uh, the this is what the what the my Aladdin equivalent characters split up into. Um, and when they find this piece of off-world alien tech, which is very powerful and can pretty much change the reality of the city, if you if you uh, once you make your wishes um, to it. Um, you have three wishes in um, limited user mode, um, and you if you unlock it, you get more. Um, when they do that, then the city changes, shenanigans ensue, and the many bars in the city won't know what hit them, is what we say on the back cover. So 
I have the first question because you, you mentioned very much that the city sort of became much more as you were working on this novel. And that's the thing I want to start with, actually, uh, because the city I found very interesting as a as an area to set this story, because Shantiport is this sort of sprawling they refer to it as a garbage town because it's it's you know got all sorts of problems and it's sinking etc but it is also a place that has been controlled by lots of different groups over many generations it's been colonized and all of these things right and so i was curious as you were putting together this city uh if you could talk a little bit about like developing and imagining some of those themes of a city that's sort of built on top of lots of history, essentially. And we see that in various ways throughout the book. Right. Well, you know, I mean, it it comes from various places, of course. And the the starting point of Shantipur was the city that I grew up in, which is Kolkata, um, in the east of India. And it used to be sort of the second city in the world in the time of the British Empire. And, and it's got a long, rich history before that, former imperial capital, etc., etc. And but it kind of became known as the symbol of poverty and decay sometime in the mid 20th century. In, um, and it, it's it's a city that's been ravaged by time. So incredible history, but also incredible power leading to incredible downfall. And it's also the city where I first encountered the story of Aladdin um, in Bengali told to me orally. And, and so and one way I came to this book was that I realized at some point that Aladdin is actually a story that is just a kind of a homeless piece of Orientalism because it was inserted into the Arabian Nights translation, the French translation, but it's probably not an original Arab story, but it's a story kind of made up on the fly by a Syrian Christian guy. And it's set in it's set in a very Orientalist China, which is also somehow Arab and has a generic African villain. Um and it doesn't match the rest of the stories in The Thousand One Nights. And this is obvious even as a child, if you're familiar with the rest of the stories. So I wanted to give this uh, kind of roving Orientalist classic a home. Um, and I wanted this home to be the city where I first heard it kind of projected into the future. And that and that's where Shantipur came from. And as far as the rest of it, you know, when you're... Since I was, since I wanted to be in the future, and I wanted the, you know the bots to come in, and I wanted the gin to be kind of a piece of sentient technology, and um, I wanted to look at things like you know climate change and equality, uh, surveillance, all of that, and then it just got thicker and thicker and thicker. So I had to leave out huge chunks of it because uh, you know my editors kept saying that the the city the yeah, the city is sprawling too much as these cities tend to do um so a lot of that just kind of sank into the waters with it but i but i really kind of enjoyed writing the city well that, that does raise an interesting side to this which um i was curious then that the idea of the city sinking because if i'm correct i know mexico city is currently being discussed as sinking but isn't it also um I might be wrong. Is it Kuala Lumpur that is also sinking? Uh, there's another one over in that region, and I can't remember. But is that that's not also true of Calcutta? It's potentially true. Like it's going to get worse and worse. Um, so a a oh. lot a lot of sort of South Asian Southeast Asian mega cities are in very scary imminent danger of just collapse uh, for climate change uh, reasons, and of course culturally. There's so much chaos going on that no one's bothering to do anything about it. So everyone's just kind of, you know, waiting for the water to reach the first floor or something like that. But but it's 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 pretty crazy. So 
Um, and it's one of those things where, you know, just the, the physical magnitude of a city, you know, the, the stakes of a city with, I don't know how many people, 14, 16 million people. And it's just the groundwater rising from beneath, but no one has time to think about it because there's so much else going on. And, and, and these are the settings in which, you know, all of these people live. And it seemed like a good reason for the citizens of Shantiport to be wanting to get out of the city as fast as they could. I have learned a new thing today. <laughs> Thank you. So I find it interesting that both uh, the the city within the story, Shantaport, is built on all these layers and all of this rich history, and the novel seems to be very much as well. And there's this sort of uh, parallel there at that level between what you have created and then the process of creating, of going through it. And all of it kind of began, is my understanding, with the going back to that story of Aladdin. And is there a particular aspect of the plot of the Aladdin that fascinated you, particularly as a child, or that made you return to that throughout your life? Or was it just simply the fact that it has this sort of layered history that attracted you to it? Well, a little bit of everything, actually. I, I remember, you know, I when I when I first heard the story in Bengali, and when I first encountered, and I then encountered it on TV in a really tacky pr- production in Hindi um, of the entire Arabian Nights. And then the next thing I saw, and I, was, and I wasn't even a teenager at that point, uh, was the Disney Aladdin of 1990 or 91 or whenever that was. And I remember even as a kid being very struck by how different these stories were, given that it was the same story. Because, you know, in, in the Arabian Nights version, you don't have three wishes. You have you, you just have wishes. You you don't have... I mean, the stories are very different and it's the same story. And I hadn't encountered that before. I hadn't encountered a, a stories that were just different in different languages. You know, and this is something that I think all of us who are... who get into a life surrounded by words and reading and writing and, and fiction in general, um, the thing of you know, when I when I saw the Disney Aladdin, I didn't like the wishes he made. I just didn't think he made the right wishes. <laughs> and 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 that that desire, you know, when you see a story or when you when you read a story and you think that's not how I would have done it, I would have done it this way. Um responding to the text like that is, I think, a fundamental part of being a writer and a reader and a critic. And I remember feeling very strongly about that with the with the Aladdin animated movie when I saw it. So it had kind of stuck at the back end of my brain for the longest time. You know, so when the opportunity presented itself many, many years later to to do a retelling in some form, I knew that this was a good story to pick because it not only did it have a sort of personal resonance, but it's also a story that thanks to Disney, the whole world is familiar with. You know, because if there's this aspect of, you know, if I if I tell an Indian fable or a Bing, or a Bengali fable or anything like that, it's taking on the burden of a cultural narrative that doesn't share the storytelling values of, say, you know, your Hollywood three-point story or whatever. So it's like an it's like an extra burden on the story, all for the virtuous sounding thing of it's a version of an ancient fable that you have never heard of, and you've never heard of heard of it because you're not probably going to be very interested in it, right? So why is the retelling more exciting? So with Aladdin, that that burden wasn't there at all. So it, it seemed like a fun thing to do. I want to talk about the monkey butt Yay. thing because because uh, <laughs> people are going to make that because they're going to hear us talk about Aladdin and then they go, oh, there's a monkey in it. Oh, so it's like it's a but uh, by the way, is is very different than I think anything anyone's expecting from 
either a bot or a monkey bot. Uh, which I'm still wrapping my head around because it's just every time he talks, I'm like, I keep forgetting he's a monkey. And then you mention fur and I'm like, <laughs> he's, a, he's a monkey bot. <laughs> it, it reminded me very much of a cross between the monkey from Futurama with a bot from Futurama. Oh, yeah. Like in kinda, terms yeah. of his attitude and his. And so any, yeah, if that resonates with a listener. That's kind of what was going through my mind as I read it. Yeah. So I wanted to ask about um, the the thing about... His character for me that I found really interesting was, even though you're, we'll come back to your point of view character, I think, in in a minute, you know, Bador is very interested in this, like, gladiator style combat thing. He wants to be a combat bot because he has this, I want to be a space adventurer and, like, I want to go off and basically an agent will come find me and I will go off into the stars and have, you know, great adventures. But part of that seemed to me that it was about him asserting his agency, his his selfhood about this is me, this is who I am. And that I thought was really interesting because while the story is not exclusively about bots and their rights in this world, this his character becomes a story where that is part of what's being discussed about where do bots even fit into the hierarchy of this world and you know how do they assert themselves as as living beings who just happen to be robot creatures. In his case, he's a he's a kind of a creature because he's a monkey. Uh, and so I, was, I, I wanted to see if that was kind of where you were thinking the story was going, and that was how you saw his character, if you could kind of talk a little bit about basically developing him and his storyline. Oh, absolutely. So Bader is one of my my two favorite characters in this, and and you know, living in Delhi for a long time, I have a very special relationship with monkeys because sometimes they barge into your house and break your stuff. And there's nothing charming about that because they are scary as creatures, right? <laughs> I have, I, I mean, there's been, I mean, I won't get into it, but there's been a time where I've been kind of locked in a room feeling pathetically unable to kind of, you know, deal with jungle creatures in my house, breaking my stuff. Um, and Googling, how does one deal with monkeys <laughs> while they broke things outside? So it's been it's been a fairly intense relationship with these creatures who have, who have now invaded my house five times over uh, the last decade or so. And the the robot and the the monkey from Futurama are actually completely part of the inspiration for Badur. So I mean, I'm I'm, I'm really glad that shows because I, I like it when when those resonances appear. So uh. The reason why, you know, he is what he is, I mean, the whole bot angle is something that grew out of the setting because having decided to set it in the future, I didn't want absolutely only present day social and political concerns to be the defining features of this city. As in, you know, those exist in, in as as kind of residue of, of inevitable residue of human existence, I, I want to say, because we just carry our problems with us and we would across planets and, and centuries as well. But this thing of technology has advanced to the point where the personhood of bots is a real social and political concern. And obviously, you know, just even looking at how we feel about AI now, justifiably so, people are not going to like these creatures. And these and these creatures are going to feel like they're human because they're also all, you know, cyborgs and, and so on. So once it was clear that the, the underclass, so to speak, politically in this city was going to be bots, you know, obviously you're your folk hero is going to be someone who cares very deeply in his own way about asserting his own personhood, um, his own ambitions, like making sure that there is a external validation and recognition of 
the selfhood and the personhood that he feels, which, you know, manifests itself in, I want to be a celebrity and a space adventurer and, and I want to save the world, but fundamentally I want things to be about me a little more. Um, rising out of this denial of uh, of humanity and personhood that society has imposed on him. And the other reason why Badur is the, is the way he is, is, is kind of, I wanted to, and I wanted to imagine a kind of hybrid Aladdin that was both these people at once, where it was, you have Aladdin's kind of, you know, ruthless, so to speak, desire to climb socially and hustle his way through the corridors of power and trick everyone into kind of, you know, just giving him more. And that aspect was kind of, would be kind of tempered down if you had an Aladdin who cared about his city and his people. And, you know, and and was interested in political intrigue and all of that. So I just split those two aspects of this character that I wanted into Lena and Bador. And Bador got most of the fun bits, you know, because uh, <laughs> he, he gets to have a lot of fun. It was it was really a joy writing him because I hadn't uh, uh, when I was writing The City Inside my previous book, I had decided, you know, no jokes, no action scenes. We shall be grim in the city together because it's about uh, it's about society as we live now. So I'd really been looking forward to just having silly fights in this book. And I got to live that out through Badr as well. Definitely. you did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that that first uh, like fight he has is was just wild to me. I was like, what is this monkey doing here? What is he, he can't do nothing. And then he kind of does, does. And I'm like, OK, <laughs> what a wild experience. <laughs> Thank you. It was it was great fun to write. I'd been I'd been waiting to kind of do something like that for a while. So that makes me curious because kind of merging what Sean was just discussing, you were answering with talking about this, how it became a sprawling, a very sprawling space opera. There's multiple plots going on here, multiple protagonists really between Lena and Bador, and um, we haven't talked about the other um, main bot in here too, and. All together, they're all having separate adventures, but then they also coalesce. They all seem to have their own antagonists that they're fighting as well, um, or having to deal with. And at the same time, you're kind of juggling very effectively humor with really serious kind of conversations or themes. As you were doing all this, my question is, what was the... Thing that you had to fight the most to make sure you didn't go too far into or off in a tangent to make sure that you were keeping things balanced between all the things all the balls in the air well i think in this case it was more a question of my editors really suffering um so <laughs> so the lovely my lovely editors at dot.com stana ali virani and roshi chen um were just very gracious about the fact that i was determined to be as unhinged as possible when I was telling the story. And uh, and I I really don't care about wrapping things up neatly. Like I, I want things to I want things to kind of, you know, be as reader friendly as possible. Um, but also, you know, given how publishing is and given um, you know, how erratic my career has been for the last two decades, I also feel like you know, every novel I get to write might be my last. If I have a series worth of ideas, which I usually do when I'm obsessing over a story, I want them all in the first book <laughs> as much as possible because one never knows if there's going to be a second book or not, you know? So, and 
as a as a result of this, I mean, I kind of, I don't feel bad at all about making my books a hot mess, um, because they're they're you know they're set in cities that are hot and messy by and large, and characters who are hot and messy usually as well. So, and my editors have been very kind in you know not telling me to explain more or pause and and kind of you know make sure that everyone's on board and i know that that it's not you know i know that my writing is not going to be for people who are very used to having their hands held and you know the readers every the the characters every thought explained to them as they move forward with the story not that i think there's anything wrong with with that kind of storytelling and i enjoy a lot of books that do that but I just like having these very uh, weird shapes emerge in the novel and then wrapping them up as best as I can. Um, and especially since I these uh, both this one and uh, both uh, the Jinbot, Prashanti Port and The City Inside are science fiction books, I, I felt a bit more, not pressure, but I felt a bit more drive to factor in my local realities, which are all completely illogical and which are all completely you know chaotic and multi-dimensional and nothing makes sense it's it's of course not right to carry all those burdens into fiction which is the one place in the world where you might expect things to make sense right but but yeah but i i mean i just trust my editors to tell me when i'm going completely off the rails which they did I have to tell you, like <laughs> with, with this book, um, and again, publishing itself isn't so much chaos that I think I pretty much rewrote the first quarter or the first one third of this book at mega speed because it was heading off in a lot of different directions, many more than it is now, and and it's a lot even now. Um, and they were like, "There's you're giving us a lot in these first few chapters because." Uh, you know, we need a little more focus and we need to know a little more about what the characters want. So I tried to I tried to do that as well. Um, but but yeah, but I I figure that it's, you know, it's I think for the people who like it when they read it, they're really going to like it. Something you were saying, I thought was really interesting because you were describing you know, the end, the ending of this. We're not going to talk about what the ending specifically, because people need to read the book and buy 40 copies. But you know, like the ending isn't like a perfect little neat bow, we'll say, right? Where everything's totally perfectly wrapped up in all the most perfect ways and everything has gone exactly as the way it's supposed to. And, I, you know, but to me, when you were saying like this is kind of a consequence of the kinds of places, both where you, you, you live, your own experiences, but also the types of places you're building, which like, frankly, this city, Shantiport is like, it is a, it is a hot mess, as you say, <laughs> like it's got so many problems. The idea that you could get to the end and it authentically, like everything is just perfect and all of it went well, almost feels kind of like cheating <laughs> to me. Like, yeah. I don't expect at the end of this book, like every problem is fixed exactly perfectly and everything's fine and all the plots come perfectly together in this perfect, neat little package at the end. I'm kind of expecting like there are things that won't be resolved here because if you did... I don't know, like, this book would have to be twice as long for that to even work, yeah. right? There are certain plots that I feel have to be resolved, and I, I think you did a good job resolving those particular plots. But I don't know I don't know if that's how you're kind of feeling about it, but that when you were saying that, that's how I was feeling was, like, it just doesn't feel like an authentic book to try to tie everything up perfectly at the end. It, it almost feels like it would be 
Like, I feel like I'd be lied to almost. Me, me personally, but maybe I'm a weirdo. <laughs> no, well, I'm the same kind of weirdo then because I because that's exactly how I feel about about these. And I, and I specifically think that, you know, I think in science fiction and fantasies, especially um, sometimes the biggest work of, of, of imagination or speculation that happens in the text is the idea that a huge society could just be resolved very quickly through the, you know, through someone making the effort and finding the right friends, you know? So, and the further you get into, the further you get into something where you're talking about empires and, and countries and cities and powers at war, look at the real world there's never a clean solution to anything i mean and if in the post broadband post social media world we're not able to understand that you know just the right intentions aren't enough to fix the world in a you know look at what happened during covid so i don't see you know i don't think the that fantasy and science fiction which are realms of the imagination um i don't think they should be lying to us in this way you know, give us the imagination. But if you're if you're doing a book that claims to be inspired by uh, the real world or real politics or real history, then I think it is it is writers' duties to look at it from different angles, to not not pretend that you know tidy revolutions are possible or that all that you know that you can you can make society perfect by just having an adventure so yeah which is not to say that those books aren't great like but those those books aren't reality the biggest the biggest uh, speculative leap in those books is that society's problems are fixable by individual effort yeah, it's like science fiction as myth versus science fiction as speculative yeah uh, about about the present <clears throat> yeah, as it were yeah yeah which there's nothing wrong with science fiction yeah. as myth. I mean, for heaven's sakes, I'm a Star Wars yeah. fan. But no, and I and I love those <laughs> stories. And I, and I mean, I I think my first three or four books were those stories, you know. But but I found you know as I was trying to take on the real world more in in fantasy and science fiction and not do completely you know stories that were uh, inspired by other stories, which um, you know had these neat endings. Um, the more I just felt weird about. Everything is fixed at the end. We're all happy. Uh, medal ceremony. On to the sequel. <laughs> you know. I feel that especially, and I don't know how anyone else feels, but like anytime I read like a young adult or book with kids in it, and the adults have just let the kids in some horrible situation <laughs> with some monster, yeah. and at the end the adults go, well, everything's fine now, and I'm just sitting here like the psychotherapy <laughs> that kids are going to need. Like <laughs> they're traumatized. <laughs> Nobody stops to think, what the hell were the adults yeah. doing? <laughs> Where were they? <laughs> this is why Disney kills them, or uh, sometimes the adults have been, like, kidnapped yeah. or something, because that's the way you get around this problem. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, there's such an easy retelling of every children's book adventure as just this dystopian nightmare. And that is not dystopian in the way that um, that the book intended, if the book is dystopian, where it just seems to be, you know five different groups and aesthetics. Yeah. So I really liked the character of Lena in that she seemed to be have a balance between being very optimistic for the future, but also being a realist. And she's sort of not, she's not as burned as her mother is in terms of having gone through revolution and maybe not succeeded in ways that she expected at first particularly early on. 
but she seems to be the most reasoned among them or the most careful thinking about how to use the gene bot's wishes how to proceed both staying true to her, her heart but then also staying true to ideals or what is reasonable even if it's not going to be perfect and so i i don't know if i have a question here i i just wanted to give you the opportunity to maybe talk a little bit about lena and where you were going when you were creating her character i guess it was really challenging to write her because it was uh, i wanted someone who i wanted to create a character with a certain coldness because i wanted this character to be able to actually plot and manipulate and you know act her way to actual political power in the city while also having a heart and empathy and you know um, to really care about her family but also keep those feelings inside uh to need to be a a mover of of people and a leader of people while also under relentless surveillance and unable to express any of that so it was it was a challenging character to write because i didn't want to talk about all of this i didn't want to let you or whatever to let the reader know how she was actually feeling and what she was actually thinking because you needed to find out her um, intentions and her uh, character through her actions, which are also deception oriented. So it, it, I mean, I, I, I felt often that I'd kind of, you know, tied my limbs into an unsolvable knot at various points because I, she was, again, in the massive rewrite, rewrite I did. I think what, what my editors were pointing out that was that she was unrelatable. And part of this was that the um, the point of view character who was observing her couldn't read her. So, you know, so she was mm -hmm. literally unreadable to the person who was telling us the story, which is Moku, the story bot. Um, so, and, you know, especially in contrast with the kind of swashbuckling nature of most of the other characters in the story, um, it was very interesting to write a character who was kind of quiet and measured and you only figure out why she's doing what she's doing a bit a few steps after she's taken taken a few steps so um it was also very it was it was interesting to write that you know that combination of characters where with with the bots you can tell what they're thinking because you you have access to their thought stream and with the humans you are trying to read their body language and you're trying to you know understand their tone but they're also constantly lying um, and they're on, also constantly trying to evade surveillance um, for, you know, very, very good reasons. So, yeah. So, again, it was um, it was a hot mess to write, but it was also great fun to do. And it, it ends up coming across very realistically, I think. Thank you. That, that's Part Particularly given the, the point of view narrator that we kind of have here. And so I, I don't know, if Sean, you want to follow up on that because we've had... Oh, we gotta talk about Covered. it. Yeah, we, I think we have to talk about Moku. Because <laughs> uh, there's, it's in chapter one when I finally realized who the POV is of the story, and it was like this. Wait, hold the fort. <laughs> you just, you just, you just like twisted me around, and I was like, whoa, this is, this was not where I thought this was going, and uh, and I really enjoyed that little switch in that first chapter because it it remi it lets us know that oh the. POV of this story is actually this this uh like narrative documentarian bot named Moku who 
can take your story down and like put it all in a lovely little neat bow and everything, which perfect for a character like Bedor who who kind of wants to have a story about him, less so for Lena, who is more secretive. And so I was really curious if you could talk about like, hey, what where where did you kind of th- think that this was going to be the POV character? And I and I, I guess the other was just kind of the the idea that the character is almost like a documentarian by design uh, is such a curious choice because that that like made me think of the idea of a POV on like very different levels. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't know where that kind of came from for you. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about like making Moku the the, the central perspective for the story. Yeah, th- thank you. Uh, first of all, that was really lovely to hear. Moku came from a lot of places. Uh, I vis- I was first visualizing this book as a mockumentary, which is why Moku is called Moku. There's no other reason. It's just a shortening of mockumentary. I I wanted this this story to be told by a camera that uh, so to speak because there's also this whole thing of you know all of all of the Aladdin stories are set in this completely strange made up generic eastern thing where where you are distanced from the realities of the characters in the story by your point of view and the you know the distance of orientalism etc cetera, etc cetera. so your there is a certain emotional distance from the story because it's 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 fundamentally most tellings of aladdin are exotic and this story aims to be anti exotic because it is about the lived reality of people in these eastern uh settings um so that was where i started thinking that the you know the pov character is kind of really important here because there's you know there's uh there's real world cultural things and then within the story i wanted to i i wanted actively to uh have very different have our leads be two very di- uh, different people not just in their character but in the way that we perceive them you know so and i figured that the cultural differences between bots and humans were best illustrated by a bot's real time inability to understand what humans were up to like that i think that's where you get the core of the that that bots and humans there's a long way to go before they can understand each other even if they're both really trying even if they're both really good people um there are just fundamental differences that they have not yet found a solution to i also wanted i also loved the idea of of you know narrators who get involved with the story and change themselves uh, so it was an interesting opportunity because you essentially have what is a single point of view character who's who's trying to 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 follow two really strong-minded characters who are, for most of the book, working in opposite directions in different parts of the city and only kind of come together when they resolve their personal differences a little bit or when circumstances throw them together. So just the idea of, you know, having to multitask and starting off from this overconfident point of view where he thought that he was very advanced technology and, you know, working with a human and a bot simultaneously would not be a challenge for him because they're all such simple creatures and he can he can handle two people he can handle two different people that's not a problem <laughs> and then having him like i mean the whole the whole book in a sense is moku failing at uh, his job and getting emotionally involved with his subjects which is the worst thing that a documentary can documentary can do from from the from the uh, from the work point of view but it sometimes leads to a good documentary and a good story except that moku just fails relentlessly 
through this uh, story. And I don't want to discuss that, you know, that he recovers a bit in the end, but, um, but yeah, but. It comes to self-realization. Yeah. Through yeah. It, so, I think. so, you know, I, it's, I thought a lot as again, this was when the story was kind of escaping from me and, and was uh, becoming about what would Bart personality really be like um, if it, if it moved past the stage of just, you know, replications of human personality um, and what would their, how would they see the world? And Moku and Bado's relationship was something where, you know, it was with with a bot. One of the great advantages you have is that you can kind of factor in that naive innocence when when they're kind of restarting in a new setting, and also a very a very advanced speed of them learning about the world. Um, so it was interesting to. I mean, you know, you you often have in these in these big adventure stories, your sort of re- reader substitute character who's new to the world and is is learning the ropes and you know, going um, experiencing the 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 layers of power from the bottom with alarming speed. And a mockumentary bot who'd just been restarted and didn't know what his origins were seemed like a fun way to go about that journey. A part of that I thought that was you know why that works I think so effectively is the thing you'd said a little while ago about like part of what he's doing is like interpreting body language which normally in a novel you can have characters do but like humans are kind of suck at we can't interpret body language usually I mean unless someone's being like huffy puffy like we can kind of figure it out but he's like doing like micro expressions and stuff which generally you can't do unless you have a camera and you a lot of time or really trained yeah. And so it actually does this interesting thing where we don't have to get in the character's heads per se, because we, we don't, he's the POV, but it means that he gets to interpret what he sees in very unique ways that otherwise would be completely inaccessible to any real character who would be looking at them. So if he were like a regular human with regular human senses, right, you couldn't really do what he does. And so you're just left trying to do what all we all do is like failing to interpret what other people feel and think and so on. And he still doesn't necessarily always get it right, but he has more data yeah. to work with. And I love the first like three chapters is like him going, I'm trying to figure out these weirdos to like, why do they <laughs> act the way that they act? And realizing that they're realizing he's figuring them out. And so they're changing their behavior <laughs> to make sure that he can't figure them out. So it's such an interesting way to do it uh, that I just... It's such. It just feels more fun to me than if you had just been like, "Here's like a character that isn't from this place, yeah, and yeah. they're gonna be our foil." This is. I just felt like there was something really meaty to play around with there. No, and it was and it was great fun as well. I mean, it it because it was. I knew that it was an interesting way to look at this, but then it became you know the the challenge really became trying to just get it right because when. You know, um, and again, I never know if I get anything right. I just know that there's a potential chance that if I'm having a lot of fun doing it, then it's probably going better than if I'm not. It's really fun to write characters who are, you know, with the exception of maybe Lena. Everyone in this book is an idiot. (laughs) 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 You know, and it, it's it's really nice to write them because they're just they're just 
they're just all heart and they're just such idiots and and you care i at least i care more about people like this when when i see that they you know they 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 have these <laughs> very pure intentions levels of goodness um, and and they're going for it and they're getting it all wrong um and you know and so so yeah so it was uh, usually you know usually from a, when you're doing the equivalent of a, not a narrator character, but say a central point of view character who's learning lessons. Um, so much of it becomes about processing the info dump really. Um, and having that be like explaining the world through uh, the eyes of this person, but also just massive info dumps plus um, a set political point of view or a set moral code and all of that. So working without all of those, uh was nice so okay here's the character he can just search everything uh his startup pack of information you don't need that info dump there's a lot let's roll with it also he's very pure but has no fixed uh opinions on anything um so yeah so and he's an idiot so that's nice <laughs> i'm so glad you just brought that up because i, I didn't have a question originally planned about this but like there's a huge part about moku when he's getting all this information, realizing there's layers and layers of lies and propaganda. And, you know, in some cases, it's like, I don't know what the truth is because there's like multiple different interpretations of information being fed into the system and things have been excised out of it. And so you just have like fragments or pieces. And that seemed to me that this this was you sort of commenting on the ways that you know, empires or any kind of power structure that wants to control people would would try to do is to control the flow of information and the narratives that you tell about the place you happen to live in. And I assume, since you're nodding, that that is kind of what yes, you were going yes. for. So I was hoping you could talk about, like, that idea of the importance of that, like, the propaganda, the lies, and trying to unpack those and their complicated messiness <laughs> i mean again one of the things that i find fascinating about fantasy and science fiction is the is our love for the timeline and that the timeline is fixed like yes we can all say history is written by the victors but the thing is that you know two centuries later there's a different set of victors who rewrite it entirely <laughs> you know even the bits that they weren't a part of so especially the last decade right like so many people in the world are just living in different realities. It's not different opinions. It's not different biases. It's literally different realities because all the information that they have about the world is different from the other sets of information other people have in the world. And I'm living in a country where history is being rewritten to just be the opposite of uh, what I grew up thinking it was. And it's, it's, it's that sort of thing where you don't think this is possible. As in, how could, you know, let's say if someone decided, someone in power in the U.S. decided that the U.S. had always been a colony of Finland, you would think that it wasn't possible that they could get away with it for whatever reason. These these hypothetical, presumably Finnish overlords um, couldn't... <laughs> 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 Let's not give them any ideas here. <laughs> you, you, you think they couldn't get away with, it, but they absolutely could, at least for a time, you know. So, and and this aspect of the world was something that I had not thought possible. 
and especially since so much of the, so many of the books i love are just you know sf and fantasy where what is history is a huge part of you love this story i'm going to go way back into these archives that fellow nerds have obsessed over for no reason but other than that it's fun and it's more to kind of acknowledge the fact that we live in a time where reality is is rewritable in the moment and to then have a city where yes there is history uh, yes there is cultural there are cultural narratives all of it is under the control of the people who run the place um, and tomorrow it could change completely we've touched on this here and there but the theme of power is present in what you were just saying and it's a huge point in the book and i want to get to a question that actually paul uh, asked uh, Paul's another Skiffy and Fanti contributor, and he would have loved to have been here for this, but was unable to be. And so one of the quotes he picked up on in the book was, people really show you who they are when they think you serve them and they have power over you. And Paul really found that to be a telling quote uh, and an important facet of the book. And so he was curious what you, I guess, were looking to say in terms of those levels of power in the novel. Um, and I guess particularly the character of the, the oligarch, Shakun Antim, might be one that you used a lot to kind of address these themes in the book. I was, I've been fascinated by uh, the relentless presentation that we all do in this world and i guess it's always been been a part of of every era of history like the the creation of this this narrative about you know anyone at every any degree of power how they're also kind and generous and nice and benevolent and so you have at any point of time in history anywhere in this world these absolute monsters who are also well-loved movie stars and presidents and leaders of state and uh, you know, um, people who are in charge of, I don't know, charity organizations, just icons of kindness who are uh, demonic creatures to the people around them in their everyday lives. And, and you know, I, I, you're, you're thinking of five examples as I'm saying this. So the idea that, you know, the, the central villain like uh, Shakunantim is my Jafar in in this story and uh you know the jafar in in any kind of story that aimed to be realist would be a hugely popular figure among the people in the city because he would make sure that his poster was on every street corner and every public work project is presented by him and so on because that's how oligarchs and power holders work they 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 buy the love of the people which is entirely possible um so, so yeah, so the idea that, uh, you know, since our protagonists are also people who are not high in the city's social structures, and uh, Lena specifically is a tour guide um, whose job is to present the exotic beauty of Shantiport to people who come visiting Shantiport with an outsider's eye and a certain contempt for for the place that they're visiting like it's it's tourism it's it's they've come to this exotic place selling the yeah, lie yeah. Or, so since yeah. her job is is selling the lie and it's a lie that she has deep feelings about because she wants to be a part of just 
rewriting uh, the the states of power in the city, um, she gets to see the worst of people sometimes because people are not nice to tourist guides in cities like Gandhipur. And I do think that an understanding of power is is enhanced by uh, the experience of never having any, you know, which which I feel sh- shaped Lena's character into someone who was able to kind of channel her passions into pragmatism to really think about everything she did, but to also never stop trying, to never say... Um, this is uh, this is pointless. Uh, there's nothing I can do. Um, I'm going to stop crying. So the point of her is that she will not let you know what she's thinking, what she's doing, and why. And she, but she will never stop crying to do what she can. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I had a lot of thoughts going on in my head, but I can't ask ninety more questions. Um, <laughs> uh, Daniel, do you want to ask one more before we do our wind up questions? Because we can't we can't keep. Oh yes, I still have many more, but I guess. So Sean and I were both talking. I was struck how at the end of the book there is a credits list. Yes. Of cover artist, everybody involved in the production of it. I've never seen this before, but I we both loved it. And I was curious, is this something you had asked for? Is this something that just appeared? Uh, do you have any information on what the story is behind that appearing in this book? Sure. You know, I'm confident that I'm nowhere near the first person to do it. Um, I started, I've been doing this uh, since 2020, uh, since the Indian edition of okay. The City Inside. Um, it was specifically about, uh, you know, about people behind the scenes uh, who were actually responsible for the creation of the image of, you know, the supposed main characters who aren't the main characters in the story. Um also, because I've worked in a bunch of other media, I'm fully aware of how the idea of the author as the sole superstar um, is a bit ridiculous, really, because books stand or fall by the efforts of a hundred people. Um, I think just after, and I've been doing this for, I've been writing for 20 years now, but I think after working in film, after being involved in the production of film and just seeing mm-hmm. that, you know, all of the hundred people in the crew apart from a few who were just like union add-on people who weren't even really union, they were nebulous political um, additional <laughs> cost. Apart from them, ev- the film could not have happened without a single person of, uh, of that crew. And I find um, authorly self-aggrandization silly often because even great authors, I- I've, I've, I've seen some bad behavior. So it just makes sense to... Um, acknowledge that a lot of people work on these things and you like having your name on things that you worked on. And, and I think a growing number of people do it. It's the right thing to do. And I, and I feel like many more will do it. It's just that it's one of those things that people just don't think about. But when they see it, it's like, oh, I should do this too. And then they start doing it. It's not, mm. you know, I'm pretty sure it's been done before and it'll get more and more common as the years pass. I we approve. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> the number of times I have been like, who's the cover artist for this book? And I'm looking in the book and they don't say. And I'm like, I'm losing my mind, guys. Just tell me who made the cover. <laughs> what are you doing? So, yeah, so it's a it's great. And I think Daniel and I are both big fans and uh, everyone should follow by example, please. Yes. 
Okay, so we have we have two quick questions to to close out our our interview portion, and one of those is, what is it that you are working on next, if anything, that you can tell us about? Obviously, I'm usually trying to work on a few of uh, Bollywood film things, and those are usually NDA, but those are usually also not going to actually happen. So, so the so the NDA is actually useful in these cases, uh, but but yeah, so so those um, I'm also I want to write a fantasy book next, so I'm I'm working on that. It's uh, and I'm as you can see, I have a very chaotic uh, prep process. So right now, the story hasn't emerged out of the very tangled world build that I'm doing, but it's it's going to be a fantasy novel, whatever. Uh, form it it takes eventually cool yeah so the other question is where can folks find you well on the on the sinking megacity of social media i am <laughs> i'm samit basu on all the things uh whatever twitter is called tomorrow uh blue sky facebook instagram all of all of the things um my website is samitbasu.com i clearly like scrolling my name on things i also have a newsletter which is I think that's that summit.substack is called the duck of dystopia. But yeah, any of these places, I'm trying to not be online as much as I usually am because online just seems awful and will be for a while. But I end up kind of living on the internet most days. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for coming on the show, talking about this book. Uh, I, I think everybody should buy it. And uh, this is a yeah, this is very great. fun conversation. I enjoyed it, and I, I'm glad I discovered the book. Sorry, um, the so take all the time you want for the chaos because I have to catch up with your older novels now. Um, I'm going to make that a point. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me. It was it was just lovely speaking with both of you. And yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I'll I'll keep listening to the show, and um, I hope everyone who's listening now keeps listening as well because you guys are great. Aww. Thank you. Oh, now I'm going to cry. <laughs> I won't cry. I'll, I'll hold it together. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, so for folks at home, as a reminder, um, if you have any thoughts about this episode, we'd love to hear from you or other episodes. Skiffyandfanny.com slash listener suggestions. We're Skiffy and Fanny pretty much anywhere there's social media. We're mostly on like Blue Sky and those kinds of places. But if you want to find like all our things like newsletters, Patreon, all that stuff, go to linktr.ee slash Skiffy and Fanny, and there's like 8 trillion lists there, um, including uh, all the stuff that you need to know about us. Uh, please review the show. Give us all your money if you have money <laughs> left. Uh, but nobody does. Let's be real. <laughs> um, for me, I'm at... I just also have a link tree. It's just slash Sean Duke, and that's where you can find me on all the socials and editing and all that. And that's also where you'll find Alphabet Streams, which is my Twitch channel, which is where Skiffy and Fanny's Skiffy and Fanny nights take place. So please go. And do that. And Daniel, what about you? You can find me at reading1000lives.com. That's reading1000lives.com. Or on Blue Sky, reading1000lives. Uh, you can also find my reviews, besides on Skiffy and Fanny blog, on um, Fantasy uh, Book Critic, on Speculative Fiction and Translation, World Literature Today, and occasionally Strange Horizons. Qu question for you, Daniel. This will be my awkward question. How close yes. are you to having read 1,000 lives? I think I have surpassed. You, you've read more than 1,000? I think probably, yes. Okay, so when are you going to add the extra zero? I don't think I can because there's a character limit to how <laughs> many you can have in your blue sky. 
um, handle. Okay. Okay. And yeah, I might surpass it. If well, you I can make that, it nine 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 nine. I could do that. Yes. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And people will think about that. Well, perfect. <laughs> On that note, awkward ending and scene. Genie, you're free. <laughs> If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash holy mole. Thank you for listening. <laughs>